0: You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. All right, so uh, if you were with us uh, last week, then you got to hear Jesus kind of clap back at some people who were challenging his claim to be the Son of God, God in the flesh, and that he was also the Son of Man, a promised ruler who was going to show up one day and and judge and reign God's people forever. Uh, These folks weren't just skeptical of Jesus, but they were actually offended by who Jesus said that he was and by just the thought of him even being their king in the first place. So using some lawyer language, uh, or if you're not good, lawyer language, um, <clears throat> Jesus defended himself by, by calling witness after witness to corroborate his claim to the throne. Uh, even going so far as to say that if they actually believed Moses, who was kind of like their number one hero at the time, then they would actually then believe what Jesus was saying about himself. But they were too busy kind of being their own little kings and, and trying to find life and a, a list of laws and pats on the back from each other to really recognize not just a, a godly leader or ruler, but even God himself. So that's kind of where we were last week. If you've seen uh, the, the great movie Black Panther uh, before, there's a, a scene in that movie where uh, T'Challa, he's the, the rightful king of Wakanda, this, this country uh, that he's a part of, um, he has his kingship challenged by the leader of a rival clan who has a different god than him. This guy's name, uh, he's a big dude named M'Baku. Uh, and M'Baku does not think that T'Challa is fit to be king. He doesn't have what it takes. Uh, he's, he's soft. He scoffs at tradition. And so T'Challa accepts this challenge to the throne, but it's not a challenge that's that's really won in a courtroom or by calling witnesses or pointing back to stuff that's already happened. It's a challenge for here and now to prove what you are worth in ritual combat, and the winner, either by yield uh, or by death, gets to take the crown. And so M'Baku, the challenger, he gets the upper hand at the very beginning of the fight and you think it's over and so he kind of starts mocking T'Challa. He says, where is your God now? And he shows the crowd uh, T'Challa's bloody body and he says, he's just a boy. He's not fit to be king. And so T'Challa's mom, who's watching on the sidelines, this is Kelly's favorite part, uh, she yells out to her boy, show him who you are. And that... That word, that cry invigorates T'Challa to get up and to fight and declare in front of everyone that I am Prince T'Challa, son of King T'Chaka, and he wins and he makes it plain as day who he is to the crowd that's gathered in front of him. Everybody cheers, right, and the throne is safe at least a little bit for a while. If you've seen the movie, you know it doesn't, doesn't end there. This kind of right here, right now, show them who you are moment, that's what we're gonna see from Jesus uh, today. If last week was all about Jesus pointing backwards at all the past stuff that like his critics have missed or misunderstood, then this week is all about Jesus showing a crowd of his biggest fans and some of his most curious followers who he is in the flesh in ways that they'll be able to get. The one that, that Moses wrote about, the one who's better than Moses, but here's the, the surprise twist. Even though Jesus defends his claim, even though the crowd seems to get it and they cheer and they celebrate at who he is, even though they're willing to go to the ends of the earth to follow Jesus, we'll see that his biggest fans end up challenging his claim to the throne just as much as his biggest critics. And so as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to see how Jesus shows us who he is how we make him into something he's not, and how we should pay attention to who we're seeking. Those are our three points for this morning. And as we do, uh, this is what I hope we'll see along the way, that Jesus makes room for us to see who he really is. That's uh, the main burden of this morning's sermon. So point number one, Jesus shows us who he is. Read with me again, John 6, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, "Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost." So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the 5 barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, "This indeed is the this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world." All right, so uh, before we hop into the meat of this stuff, I want you to kind of see how the pieces are moving on the board today. So there should be a slide. uh, If you know the next one, it's a map, which I know might be super tiny for you. Uh, I hate trying to find maps of like this. It's just really tough. It's tiny and everything. But this is kind of gives you a picture of where we're at uh, today. It matters. There's lots of traveling, walking, sailing, climbing. Uh, There's some places that have like two different names, but they're the same thing. And you might be directionally challenged like me. Uh, And so you might find it helpful to actually see where they're going, uh, what they're crossing, what they're climbing, uh, all of that stuff. So Jesus was coming from Jerusalem at the bottom there. uh, And and this is where he claimed to be God and got into an argument with uh, all the the folks that were down there. And so uh, afterwards, Jesus went away. He went up the big up arrow there from Jerusalem to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That body of water that circled, that is the Sea uh, of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. It's the same thing. And then he, when he did that, he climbed up one of the mountains. There were kind of huge hills surrounding the, the sea there. And because people uh, in and around Jerusalem were seeing and hearing about how Jesus was healing the sick and all that stuff, a crowd formed and followed him all the way there. It's pretty crazy. So that's what that looks like. Now look, I I know that some of you are introverted, right? Some of you cannot wait to just like bolt out of the room after the benediction is read. I understand that. But how many of you have walked 75 miles, went to the other side of a body of water, and then climbed a mountain to put some distance between you and a group of people? Like, that's somebody who gets energized by being by himself probably, right? Right? So that's what Jesus did, but not just to get away from folks. In fact, he, he probably did this knowing that he, he likely couldn't get away from this crowd. So he wanted to put himself in a place where he could let them know that he was more than just some bag of tricks. He wanted to show them who he really was, this guy that Moses wrote about. So uh, here is Deuteronomy 18. 15 through 19. This is from, it should be up on the screens here. This is what Moses wrote about. This is what he said. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. This is Moses talking. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb, Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so that we won't die. didn't want to hear from God personally. It was scary. Then the Lord said to me, They've spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything that I command him. I'll hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. Jesus wants the people who are seeking him to know that he's that guy, right? That son of God who says and does only what the father tells him and that rejecting him is the same thing as rejecting God himself. That's also because Jesus is God Himself. So, what we're gonna see Jesus do is take this whole situation with thousands of, of people who are getting hungry on a hillside, and he's gonna orchestrate what happens in a way that makes this plain to everyone. And John, the one who's kind of writing this story for us today, uh, he tells this story in a way to help his readers see that. So, he fills this passage with callbacks and references to the Old Testament, stuff that makes them think about Moses uh, and the Exodus and and other prophets showing uh, Jesus or how Jesus is then better than all of those things. And so I'm going to walk through some of those for you so you can see this, all right? It'll be up on the the screen, how John points to the Old Testament. First, John makes a point to say that uh, what time of year it is. It's Passover. It's an annual feast when they celebrate how God spared their people from death but brought death upon their enemies, the Egyptians, who had enslaved them. And the fact that it was a big annual feast, uh, that doesn't just explain why there might have been huge crowds free to follow Jesus around uh, from Jerusalem, but it reminds us of what happened right before, right after the first Passover meal, which is what, what Moses did. He led God's people away from their city in Egypt, across the sea, and took them to a mountain, where Moses went up to hear from the Lord, and since they had left the city, uh, a, a frustrated Moses had to deal with thousands of people complaining about food and why the Lord would drag them into the wilderness just to starve them to death. All right? Shout out to moms and dads of toddlers uh, out there. So, so to let them all know what Moses or that Moses was not out of his mind, and that God really is God, the Lord supernaturally then provided food for his people manna. You may have heard about that before. There's even a reference to Elisha uh, in here. He was another prophet who did come after Moses uh, before Jesus did, who took up a sack full of 20 loaves of barley bread and he fed a hundred men. And Elisha's servant at the time said, what? Like, what am I supposed to do? Set a bag of bread before a hundred hungry dudes? And Elisha said, give it to the people to eat because the Lord says they will eat and they will have some left over. And they did. And so Jesus, in contrast to a, a frazzled Moses, just kind of calm and cool, he leans over to Philip, right, as a sea of thousands of people approach the mountain. And he says, hey, like, where are we going to buy enough bread for, for all these people to eat? And John adds this little comment of like, that Jesus is just asking this question just to see what Philip would say because he already knew what he was going to do, right? I love that. So Philip's like, look, not even 200 denarii. That's eight months of paychecks. would buy enough bread to let everyone just have a little bite of bread. And then Andrew's like, hey, there's a a boy who has five loaves of barley and and a couple of fish, but that's not really much help for all these people. And so Jesus, in order to let the people know that he didn't lead them away from a city, across the sea, into the hills just to starve, he comes down the mountain a little bit to a big grassy area, and he supernaturally provides food for everybody. Multiplying those barley loaves, multiplying the fish, feeding them all with enough for leftovers. Not originally from 20 loaves of bread, for, but from, from five. And not feeding 100 people, but feeding 5,000 5,000 men plus women and children likely with them. In other words, he's better than Moses. And even better than the guy who already came after Moses. He's the guy who's better than the guy who came after Moses. <laughs> Jesus isn't out of his mind. He is who he said he was. How did the people respond? This indeed is the prophet who has come to the world, right? They got it. They sent, they sent the Steve Rogers Captain America meme in the group chat. They said, I understood that reference, right? I get it. I understand what they're talking about. All of the references that John points out, they got it. They knew what he was saying about himself because Jesus had shown them exactly who he is in a way that they could understand, that they might listen and believe and share in eternal life. Now, it might be fair to say that uh, most of us, that connection is not so obvious, right? A, a plain reading of the story might lead us to pick up on Jesus' power or his provision or his care, not just for folks' souls, but for their, uh, their empty bellies, right, around dinner time. That's true. But if, but if that's all we take away from this, then we're not picking up what John is trying to put down. Some of you might even be like, what's a Moses? Like, what is a Moses? What is manna? What's it taste like? Why is everyone climbing mountains? And and that's okay. We were not John's intended audience when he was writing this. In fact, whenever we open up the Bible, we're just kind of foreigners from the future who are hopping into a time machine, reading about a world that we are not from through eyes of people who were. And that's just tough. And some of us have been swimming in Scripture for a long time. Others of us are just getting started in that. Some of us are somewhere in the middle. Some of us may not even be Christians yet that are in this room yet. So if you just don't get stuff when you're reading the Bible, or if some of this doesn't make any sense, hey, like, guess what? There's a reason why Michael and Matt and Adam and I and many of you have lots of books and why none of them are written by us. Because we have a lot to learn. We get to learn, all of us. We get to learn together through this stuff and we get to learn about a God who desperately wants us to connect the dots, to learn about him, to know him and not just from a distance, not just through a book or through somebody talking up here on a Sunday. The boy, you might get to know a celebrity on TikTok or from Twitter or whatever, but, but he wants us to know him up close and personal. He wants to show you who he really is and you, you don't need a library of books, you don't need a Ph.D., you don't need a G.E.D. to be introduced to him. And that's what I want you to see from this part of the passage. Yes, yes, that Jesus is the prophet, the Savior, the one that we should be waiting for. But also, if you don't know that you should be waiting for anybody, I want you to know that Jesus has gone and will continue to go out of his way to show you who he really is. He literally went out of his way here. Three days journey and up a mountain to paint a picture of himself that would be clear to the crowd who was following him, even if it's not clear to us, because he, he wanted the people in front of him to get it. And later, he would ditch the, the subtlety a little bit, a little bit of the, the secrecy, and he would travel up another hill, but this time to be executed, to be nailed to a cross and lifted up in shame publicly to die a sinner's death like a criminal surround his body it used to he used to work miracles and used to walk for three days straight and sail seas and climb mountains would lay lifeless in someone else's tomb for three days only to have it come back to life and break out And a newly resurrected Jesus would appear to men and women here and there and at some point revealing himself to another crowd, one of over 500 brothers and sisters all at one time. And after he rose to take his throne in heaven, he sent his spirit to help people like John write all this stuff down and to help people like us open up the Bible or hear about Jesus and have our eyes open, not just to information about him, but to him that we might have our That's the guy that I've been waiting for a moment. Follow him and then entrust him with all of our guilt and all of our sin and all of our judgment that he already died for. And that we might also entrust him with our life here and now and into eternal kingdom that has no end. Even without knowing what a Moses is, Jesus went out of his way to prove he's someone to pay attention to, to seek after, who has sought after you, and he'll go out of his way to show you who he really is, even today. So the question is, do you want to see him? And before you say he's not for you, if you are in this room this morning, you are his target audience. You are the people in front of him today. Jesus found a place where there was much grass, not enough food, not enough of lots of stuff, but there was much grass, so there was enough room for all the folks who hadn't gotten it yet to finally get it. And Jesus has more than enough room for you and anyone to sit at his feet and listen and learn and follow. He wants to show you who he really is. But all too often, and this is point number two, we make him into something that he's not. If you'll read with me uh, verses 15 through 21. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, this is the crowd, to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "'It's I. Don't be afraid.'" Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Greta Thunberg and Kyle Rittenhouse. You might be familiar with those names, maybe, Uh, maybe not. You can Google them, not now, later. Um, But they're people who are loved by entirely opposite ends of the political spectrum, and yet they have a lot in common. They are both 19 years old. They both had a flash in the pan moment that brought them international attention. Both of them were quickly treated as spokespeople by their respective movements. They were quickly given platforms, shoved on stages, asked to give speeches, policy suggestions, interviews, documentaries. Despite being on different sides of the aisle, Greta and Kyle's celebrity are products of the same part of our nature that's quick to anoint leaders and declare heroes after seeing just one slice of their life. One moment that then we define them by. We crown folks a king or a queen and we send them off into the world to go fight our fights on the world stage for, or just to be clear, that's not a good thing. Our eagerness to prematurely crown kings or queens that we don't fully know or understand who aren't yet ready, it's on full display in their stories. And it's, and it's also on display in this part of our passage today because it clicks with the crowd that Jesus is this promised prophet. That's great, but no one stops to ask Jesus what his mission is, right? What he wants, what he's up to, what he's doing. Why the heck even led them to a mountain in the first place? The people just simply seeing his power, they want to crown him as their king, assuming he's fit to fight whatever battles they want the perfect leader to free them from whatever bad things in their mind. Probably the Romans, right? Just like Moses freed God's people from the Egyptians. That's probably what was in their mind. He will free us from these oppressors. And Jesus picks up on this. They're gonna take him and kind of carry him crowd surfing style, maybe three days back to Jerusalem, sit him on a noble steed, put a sword in his hand and just send him into the city, marching viva revolution, right? And so he says, Ain't happening. Not doing it. And he pieces out. He goes back up the mountain by himself. Is Jesus qualified to be king? Absolutely. Are they the ones who are going to crown him? Absolutely not. They couldn't make Jesus their king any more than they could turn Moses into their prophet. And they couldn't set Jesus' agenda for him any more than they could write their own commandments on Moses' stone tablets. But that's what they wanted to do because they had seen what he could do. Heal the sick, feed the hungry, challenge the religious establishment, carry an authority from God that might rival Caesar. They had plans for Jesus. They just weren't Jesus' plans. Jesus showed them who he was And something clicked, but they immediately began wanting to make Jesus into something that he's not. And the good news of this story is that he won't let them. He'd rather run for the hills, literally, than let himself be used for someone else's social, political, ideological purposes. And in describing Jesus' escape, John is trying to remind us of some more Moses stuff, to tell us both about Jesus and also about ourselves so if put the slide up there for some more Old Testament stuff. When, when Moses led God's people out of Egypt, uh, the, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he didn't let them go peacefully. Shortly, uh, shortly after they left, which happened to be in the middle of the night, uh, Pharaoh sent his army after Moses and God's people. So Moses and the people, they were fleeing out of Egypt and from the Egyptians who were in hot pursuit. And at a, a climax in this chase, they hit a dead end and they run up against the Red Sea without a boat. And so God commanded Moses to stretch out a staff in the air, and the sea parted like, and after everyone had made it across, Moses stretched out his staff again, and as the Egyptians were crossing it in hot pursuit, the sea then crashed back together and swallowed up all of their enemies. So it's not a coincidence here this morning that Jesus' escape with his people is also at night and across a tumultuous sea. Except instead of needing a staff and some dry ground to cross on, Jesus just just tightens his sandals and just walks across the thing like it's nothing, right? Jesus had probably told his disciples to uh, head out uh, in the boat without him. We actually see him give his disciples those instructions in Mark 6, where the same event occurs. He feeds folks and then uh, crosses the sea together. So uh, just so you know, the, the, the disciples weren't ditching Jesus, all right? They weren't like having a home alone moment where they'd look in the boat and like, oh, shoot, Where's Jesus? Like we left him back there. That wasn't happening. They were probably following Jesus orders. But they probably weren't expecting him to be just strolling along the top of the water, right? I'll meet you there. They probably thought on the other side of the sea, not in the middle of the sea, right? And so they freak out. Like when they freak out because they see some figure out on the sea, Jesus says, "Hey, it's I. Do not be afraid." Something the Lord says time and time again in the old Testament, even, even hinting a little bit at God's name that the Lord revealed to Moses, Yahweh, I am who I am, all right? It is I, do not be afraid. And Jesus, after hopping in the boat, he gives them safe passage across the sea and away from the pursuing crowds. All of this isn't just about Jesus having authority over creation, but he does, all right? He does, and we see that here, but, but it's a direct callback to Moses, That we might see once again that Jesus is the better Moses. It's more evidence that shows us who he really is. Easy peasy, right? But here's the question if Jesus is Moses in this analogy, and if the disciples are God's people going across the sea, then who are the Egyptians? Who are the people they're running away from? It's not the Romans. It's the crowd. Not, not some like mustache-twirling villains that are chasing them with chariots and horses and all that stuff who want to force them back into manual labor, but avid fans who loved him so dearly that they wanted to put him to work as a champion for their own purposes. While well, those two groups might seem very, very different from one another. They're exactly the same. They both want to own and exploit Him for their own thing. And we often make Jesus into something that he's not. And it happens easily, sometimes with really, really good intentions. When you read this passage now and in the future, like don't put yourself in the place of Jesus. Don't put yourself in the place of Philip or or Andrew. You need to put yourself in the place of the crowd, one of the many faces who were all too eager to crown Jesus the king of our own pet issues. That sounds like something you would never do. Like, you would never do that. sounds so far off from you. Here's easily. First, it can happen when when your first impression of Jesus remains as your only impression of Jesus. All right, so you, you never know him as anything other than what he seemed to you when you first met. All right, the crowds in John, they saw Jesus performing miracles. And so, boom, right, he's here to make everything better right now. Right. Now go, Jesus, like do that stuff, whatever it is, make it better in whatever way that I have imagined you to do that. And so we take the first slice of Jesus and we think that we've got the whole pie in front of us. Because she literally wanted to give me a piece of pumpkin pie that she had gotten in one of the dining halls or whatever. Now, if her first impression of me never grew beyond that, she might think I actually like pumpkin pie. <laughs> I did not like pumpkin pie. I liked her. That's what I wanted her to know from that. Similarly, while, while all of us meet Jesus without knowing much about him at first, like that's all of us, right? No one meets Jesus having known everything there is to know about him. I mean, we get to keep getting to know him. And if we don't, we might let our own assumptions do a lot of the heavy lifting and we end up misunderstanding what he's like and what he's all about. Secondly, we can make Jesus into something he's not when our favorite thing about Jesus becomes the only thing about Jesus that matters to us. Uh, our family loves to build Lego sets together at Christmas. Uh, everyone gets a, a Lego set. We spend Christmas Day building Lego together. Uh, but what inevitably happens is that the sets get taken apart and, and all their kids have their favorite pieces from their sets or their favorite minifigures or whatever, and they all end up mixed and muddled together with other sets to make something else entirely, but with those favorite Pieces, and this is what we do with Jesus when we act like he's just a combination of some really great personal qualities, right? Some just check boxes on a personality profile. And buffet style, we just kind of pick and choose our favorites and build a Jesus that's pretty lopsided since it's a mixed bag of bricks. And maybe Jesus legitimately changed you in a particularly powerful way. Maybe you're drawn towards a. Be careful that what we're drawn to isn't making us draw a picture of Jesus that's just an exaggerated caricature. Of him That maximizes parts of Jesus and minimizes other parts of Jesus. What others and what you need isn't a piece of Jesus. You need the whole person of Jesus. He doesn't just embody your favorite thing. He should be your favorite person. All of him, three-dimensional, the whole kit and caboodle, unashamed. And lastly, and this might be in some ways the most applicable in our culture today, but we can make Jesus into something he's not. When we saddle them up, we send them in to fight our fights for us. There's a ton of stuff in the world and in the church that deserves pushback and needs correction, requires line drawn. line's drawn on the sand. It's worthy of lend- lending prophetic voices to and speaking out against. But sometimes we end up reducing Jesus down to a trump card that we can play to our hot button issues. So we use the red letters to shut down conversations instead of actually inviting folks, including ourselves, to be formed and sent by him. Whether we're trying to to punch right or punch left or deconstruct or defend the faith or bring about accountability or preserve the possibility of repentance and restoration in our culture, I guarantee that we made Jesus into something he's not if he is the exact opposite of our political, ideological, theological, sociological enemy. If you think the world's biggest problem is a lack of masculinity, the Jesus you always talk about might be the one soaked in blood with tattoos looking to pick a fight all the time, right? Or uh, if the world's biggest problem is a lack of compassion for the poor and powerless, then the Jesus you talk about might be preoccupied with coming against privilege and power and wealthy folks and all that stuff. If the Jesus that you call upon always looks like the good version of Superman, compared to the exact opposite evil version of, there's a good chance that you've let conflict and strife redefine Jesus for you. And folks, all of this is so easy to do. We all do it, you do it, I do it. I wanna dunk on people all the time on Twitter, all the time. Here's a diagnostic question that we get to ask. Are we employing Jesus to accomplish what we wanna see happen more than we're letting him employ us in the slow and steady mission of making, maturing, and multiplying disciples for the kingdom of God that's only advanced by bringing good news to your enemies and your neighbors at great cost to you and at the call for repentance and the invitation to belief for all. We can invoke his name, but Jesus is not going to fight our battles for us if we're just wanting to wage war against Caesar or burn down the world or win a Twitter feud, right? In fact, he'll head for the hills to avoid being sucked into that stuff, but he will gladly join you as he gladly joined the disciples in their boat. If you're willing to go with him where he's going, where he has told you to go, to take the fight against sin and Satan, not just to the far off gates of hell uh, or even to City Hall or whatever, but first and foremost to your own heart that he might dethrone whatever's currently sitting on your heart. That's not him. Jesus shows us who he is and we make him into something that he's not. But the good news is that he won't let us. And he invites us then to pay careful attention to who we're seeking that we might find the real him. And that's our third point for this morning is that we, we are to pay attention to who we are seeking. Verses 22 through 24. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. The Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So you can throw the map back on there again. So Jesus and his disciples, they had snuck away in the middle of the night to cross the sea again. Those are really tiny arrows up at the top, but they like crossed a sea once to get to a mountain and then they crossed the sea again to get to Capernaum, which is at the top kind of of that sea uh, up there. But the crowd's not giving up. Uh, th- these groupies were determined to find Jesus, kind of acting like some amateur and detectives a bit, to figure out where he was and where he could have gone. You know, in like every neighborhood, there's always uh, that person on the block who always knows who's home, right? Uh, which car belongs to which person? And man, who got in it the last time that car left? They're always you know, peeking out the window, watching their ring doorbell camera. I'm not sure what they're doing, but they keep tabs. That might be some of you, all right? And that's okay. It's very cool. Uh, but, but they keep tabs on who's home right? And, and who left with who and who got in the car when the car took off? And that's what the crowd's doing here, right? Now look, there was only one boat parked here before, and then we saw the disciples get in, but we're positive Jesus didn't get in before the boat pulled out, and so we know he's still around here somewhere. So they, they go to where they know Jesus' last was. They, they investigated the hillside where he fed people looking for clues, right? They're like, there's not even any breadcrumbs in here anywhere. The trail's cold. So as more, People show up to look for Jesus. They all hop in their boats and they sail to Capernaum and the the chase is on. So let it be known. These folks were genuinely seeking after Jesus. They were looking for clues. They were sifting through evidence. They were investing time and travel and all sorts of things, sacrificing stuff to find him. And yet the Jesus that they were looking for was nowhere to be found because he didn't want to be found because the Jesus they wanted him to be, what they wanted to make him into was not the Jesus. Fast forward a bit. The crowds do end up catching up to Jesus. He will ride into Jerusalem one day to the cheers of the people. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Like the crowds will arrested by them when he doesn't give the command to attack, but instead gives up his freedom and his life they turn on him like that. They're disillusioned and they're disappointed. Not because Jesus wasn't really the prophet or the king that they needed, the one that that Moses told them about, but because the real Jesus who lived and taught and gave thanks and fed the multitude, the one who bled and died for them, wasn't the prophet or king they wanted. They wanted to make him into something that he wasn't and when he wouldn't let him, they killed him. The only thing we ever crowned Jesus with was thorns. Folks, it's not enough to seek Jesus in some vague way. Lots of people seek Jesus. Which Jesus are you seeking? Is it the one who might surprise you and teach you something about himself? Hey, hey uh, uh, where are we going to get enough food right? to surprise us with what he might... Do Is it the one who might tell you to do something that makes no sense and puts you at risk, right to leave without him in the middle of the night to get on a boat and sail across a raging sea? Or are you seeking the Jesus that affirms every one of your desires? Who meets every expectation, who gladly fights and wins all of your battles for you? That one honestly sounds less like Jesus' is king and more like you are. There's one Jesus who was willing to live and die and rise again for the forgiveness of your sins, for the removal of your shame, for the security of your eternal life. And it was the one who was willing to disappoint you now, beautiful and real forever. Where we all want to challenge the throne of Jesus in some way, the real Jesus will challenge us in some real ways. Sometimes we open the Bible and it's hard because it's just hard. Again, we're, we're time-traveling foreigners when we crack open this book, but sometimes it's hard because we scour the pages looking for the Jesus that we think we know, and he's just not there. He's saying stuff that we don't like. He's doing things that we wish he wouldn't have done. Right? This isn't the Jesus that I first met. Right? These, these are my least favorite parts of Jesus. Right? I, I can't use what he said or did here to make my point or to affirm where I sit on something, or to win my argument for me. I don't want Jesus, the prophet, or the king. Give me Jesus, my miracle worker. You can find whatever Jesus you want in this book. You can find a way to find every kind of Jesus by by looking at a verse here and a passage there. But if you do that, you'll comb through most of these pages that are in here. Like the crowd searching for breadcrumbs on the hillside, unable to find a trace of him. Because even when he shows up, the Jesus that we're looking for does not exist between these covers, cover to cover. He only exists in our imagination. Uh, T'Challa, the Black Panther, the real and rightful king, when he got the upper hand, he could have ended the whole thing He could have defended his claim to the throne with the death of his challenger by just ending him right there, M'Baku. But but instead, he begged M'Baku to yield for his sake, for his people's sake, to say, okay, fine, I might not like it. I might not get it. I might find myself on the opposite side of some things from you, but you're the king. Tested, proven, I will bow my knee. And if there's any shred of you that resonates with the grace and the mercy and leadership of a, a fictional king, of a fictional kingdom, I've got a real one for you. Right here, who has no desire to destroy those who have questions, who are skeptical, who even know they're fake fans. Who find themselves somewhere different than he is on some things. Who, who is the fullness of grace and mercy and more. And if you have a hard time believing that he's good or that he's, he's entrusting your life to him, or that entrusting your life to him would be good for you, then you need to know that just like T'Challa would eventually do later in the movie. And this is a spoiler alert. Jesus would let himself die for the sake of honoring the throne and to actually defend his claim to it. Not letting the crowds dictate who he is or what he should do, but listening to the voice of his father, giving his life away as a good and faithful king, only to return to conquer the real enemy and to restore peace and to lead his people. Pay attention to who you're seeking and yield to Jesus as he's shown himself to you. Instead of challenging him, let him challenge you. Challenge, challenge you to put your life in his hands, to confess your sins and to give your guilt away and to let yourself be led and changed by grace. And so I'll, I'll leave you kind of where our, our focal passage leaves us. I've been on a cliffhanger a little bit. I have, have one question. I have one reminder And I have one invitation for you all. The question is this. Which Jesus are you seeking after today? Is it the one that you want to crown? Or is it the one who's already wearing one? The one who's made himself known or the one that we've made up? The reminder is this. uh, The one thing that there was plenty of before Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish was room. There was much grass Right? And every skeptic, every person that was just looking for a miracle worker, every last man, a woman, and child genuinely curious about this Jesus, no matter what they knew, no matter what their expectations were, they all had a place to sit at his feet because he wanted to show them who he really was. And that's true for you too. You who he really is. If you're willing to take him as he is and yield your life to him. And then lastly, the imitation is this: to a meal. It's symbolic, pointing to the fact that it was it was by faith and a sacrifice that judgment and death passed over us. Um, Pastor Michael will hit on a bit of a meal motif next week uh, when he comes back, but suffice it to say that we all get to come together, not on a hillside, but around tables in this space today to partake in the same little wafer and juice, all of us together. that point to the fact that just like what one little boy had to offer was enough to feed thousands, the life and the death of one person is enough to cover the sins and sufferings of all who would believe. And so I invite you to the table in repentance and belief this morning. Band, you can come up here. This is communion. Like I said, there's a wafer and juice up here. If you're a believer in this room this morning, this is for you. And I would call you to to sift your heart and ask the Lord what he would challenge you in. Is there somebody you need to make amends with? Do you need to repent of some sin, confess something? Make your heart clean and contrite before coming up here and getting to declare that you have peace with the Lord. You get to celebrate you're part of this community because of what Jesus did for us here at this table. If you're not a believer this morning, you're not a Christian, if you're not sure if you are, then this isn't for you, but we would love to talk with you. If you want to give your life to Jesus today, I would love to walk up here with you for the first time to take this. If you just want to sit and pray. Then you can do that. You can stay at your seats. You can go over to the prayer bench over there if you would like. Um, There'll be a couple people over by uh, that red tree over there. Uh, I'll be back along the wall over there. If anyone has anything they wanna talk about or pray about, I would love to pray uh, with you guys. Um, And lastly, you're welcome to sing and celebrate with the band as they continue to lead us in worship. If you would, join me uh, in prayer. God, thank you for being a God who reveals himself to us, that you don't leave us in the dark, you don't speak some language that we don't understand, but that you speak our language and you come to us in a way that we can get because you want us to know grace. And so for those of us in the room that are stuck on something, stuck on you, there's something about you or that they've seen you say or do in the Bible or heard other people say that's just too much, God, I pray that you would remove that for them. Not, not get rid of it, but, but set it aside to come back to another day that, that they might see your grace and glory and goodness and that might be enough to draw them back to you or to draw them to you for the first time. And God, help us to be a community that's willing to walk with people through those things. That we know this is tough and this is hard, but God, that you are worth it. And that more that than, than we have sought after you, God, you sought after us first. Let us uh, be motivated by that, your pursuit of us. Bring us to faith for the first time. Bring us to faith in new ways today in the same Jesus, who was king, is king, and will forever be king. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.